Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Drumforge. Drumforge is a forward-thinking developer of audio tools and software for musicians and producers alike. Founded on the idea that great drum sounds should be obtainable for everyone, we focus on your originality. Drumforge, it's your sound. And now your host, Bo Burchell. Welcome. Welcome back to the URM Podcast. Uh, Bo Burchell here doing another Dear Bo episode. Thank you so much for writing in and asking me questions. I love, love, love talking about audio dork stuff, so this is super fun for me. Um, Dear Bo, episode number two. Pretty cool. We have a crap load of questions, so I'm going to try to not have too much diarrhea mouth and try to keep this episode under, I don't know, maybe an hour and a half. Maybe that would be that would be nice, right? Although I would like to say I had a pretty great day today. You guys that are mixing records and having things kind of like be released, whether it's on Facebook or, or Bandcamp or wherever they're being released or, or on iTunes, whatever, it's always a really cool feeling when all of the work that you know you and the band and everyone put into making a record and then that record finally comes out and... I guess it's always nice when it gets a positive response from people. So I had that happen today. The, there's this band called Hundred Sons that I mixed a record for, and the single came out today, and it's uh, it's doing pretty well. Everyone's psyched on it. And I'm especially happy with it because for me, that's a... If you listen to that, so the song's called Last Apology, and if you listen to it, it's got a fairly, what I would call, kind of a, a high to mid-tuned snare drum. And it's not normally something that I gravitate towards. I normally am drawn towards kind of like a beefier snare with or a medium tune snare, but that I feel like is kind of a little more of a high, kind of like deftonesy type snare. And you know, whenever you're working with stuff that's a little outside your comfort zone, it's always just you're, it's a little. I get a little bit nervous, you know, because you don't have that comfort of knowing, like, oh yeah, this is where my snare should punch, and it feels great, you know. So, anyways, that came out today, and uh, it's 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 really nice that people are enjoying it. Um, also, I'm working on this Senses Fail record right now, and that's just like going fantastic. And then. I just finished mixing another middle class rut song, and the reason why I'm bringing this up is because uh, there's that that speed mixing course uh, that URM is doing, and I read some of the the outlines and kind of like was having kind of like one of those aha moments. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Like oh yeah, I should really try to focus on that tonight. So, anyways, it was kind of cool. I set a stopwatch on how long it took me to to mix this song. Granted, Middle Class Rut, if you haven't heard them, they're very they're a very simple band and they have it's just drums and guitars. There's no bass, which also presents a little bit of a problem because you don't have that constant sub low end, so you have to figure out ways of making it happen. So, anyways, but yeah, so I timed myself tonight and uh even though I wasn't supposed to really, you know, do prep work and mix at the same time, I just said screw it and went for it so I mixed prepped the song it took me 20 minutes to mix prep the song and then it took me 30 minutes to mix the song um, I sent it off and the only note I got back was potentially doubling the chorus which means basically I killed the mix first round which is always like a, a great feeling also so anyways all in all I'm having a pretty pretty awesome day today so I'm pumped 
You know, one other thing I one other thing I'd like to mention because uh, you know when you when you're talking to friends about this stuff, it's it's always just kind of cool bringing up stuff. You know, like so so for instance, today how easy it was for me to mix that song. I have another friend, and earlier today we were FaceTiming, and uh, you know he was just kind of having issues mixing a track that he had produced, and you know one of the hardest things about mixing a track that you've produced is like you already know what went into it, you know? So he was having a problem with uh, the kick drum and the snare and, and basically just everything that involves mixing, you know? So he was, because he knew that he had already added, let's just say 5 dB at, you know, at say like 6K on the on the snare drum, when he was mixing it, you know, he, he, one of, I told him right away, I was like, man, I think the snare's kind of dark. I think it kind of pop a little more. It's darker than your usual snare. And his reply was, well, I'm already adding 3 dB to it. it. You know, and it's, if that was anyone else's tracks that you would get, you wouldn't care how much you were adding to it. You would just say, man, this snare is dark as crap. I got to add 20 dB to this thing. So, yeah, it was just it was just one of those things where I, you know, we both kind of sat there and and we were like, dude, I think you're really fallen victim of trying to mix your own stuff, and it's you're just you've set rules on yourself that shouldn't be there. Anyways, I uh, I just thought that was kind of interesting and just a little fun fun tip to share with you guys that you know when you are mixing other people's tracks, you kind of have an advantage because you don't know what they did going into it, but. At the same time, you know, you kind of do want to know what was going into it in case you they're asking you to preserve some of the character, you know. Any, anyways, ramble over. Let's jump into it. First question, Michael Bivens. Hey, Bo, thanks for doing another podcast. Could you talk a little bit about how the Kahayan switcher has improved your workflow? What were you doing before during tracking and how has that changed? I'm designing an amp rack with all my heads and a surreactive load box and I think it would make a great centerpiece. Thanks and have a good one, Mike. Well, Mike, I mean, I'm going to sound a little bit like a, like a Kahayan audio switcher sales rep right now, but this thing is awesome. So I have... Let me just move a little bit. I'm so I'm looking at it right now and what I've got going is the way it works is it's like it's almost like the internet or like a cell phone for your you know it's like one of those AT&T commercials connecting the world. But it really is like before so before I used to have I had a patch bay that I made. It was all quarter inch connectors that would all all of the output the speaker outputs of my heads would all go to a female quarter inch jack on a single space rack panel that I had made. And then, so there was eight female quarter inch panels to connect the speaker outputs. And then I had four female speaker outputs that would then tie into my ISO booth to where I could have four cabinets set up there. So what I would have to do is I would have all of my heads on, but on standby. And then whatever head I wanted to use, I would have to, because I always take a DI, whenever I'm tracking, in addition to whether it be, you know, Axe Effects or Amp or whatever it is I'm tracking with, I always take an extra clean DI. So I would have to go out of my DI box, the out of, the, like, I guess the through DI box, then into whatever head I was using. So I would have to patch the guitar into that head, and then I would have to patch the speaker output into whatever cab I was doing, and then turn the cab off of standby. 
because when you're using the quarter inch cables panel, which, you know, now looking back, I should have been using something like a speak on connector to where the, the two, I guess it would be positive and ground where they never actually can cause a short, but because in a, just the way the mechanics of a quarter inch cable work is when you insert it, there is a certain point in there where the sleeve, I, it's like the, the tip and the sleeve are both touching or they connect and cause a short for a split second. So anyways, so that's what I would have to do. Now with this, everything's plugged in. All of the inputs to the guitar heads are plugged in. All the outputs, the speaker outputs are all routed back into this box. All of the to the speaker cabinets are routed to this box and it's all just push buttons right on the front. And whatever head is not being used doesn't receive signal from the guitar. Therefore, the amount of load that the the load box or like the phantom load or whatever it's called inside of this unit, it's a very small load because the head is just idling. So it's amazing. So imagine if you had uh, like four different amp sims on your track and you just bypass them all, and then you just wanted to, okay, how does sim, how does preset one sound? Boom. How does preset two sound? Boom, 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 boom. And it's that fast. I can actually go through this setup faster than a plug, than different plugins, because if you think, if you really get down to clicks, I just click amp number one, and then I click amp number two, whereas on a plugin, unless it was all within the same plugin, I would have to deactivate one, then reactivate the other. So it's actually one click faster than even doing it in plugins. And then on top of that, now I have the microbot in there, which I think I'm going to get another microbot for my second cab. So I like to have one cab with vintage 30s and one cab with greenbacks in there, and then I can choose depending on the part. Anyways, yeah, so far... I've I've only been using it on the census fail record, but like so far it's just been awesome. Especially especially when you really compare an amp, you know, with with like zero it's it's like it's as fast as changing a channel on your amp. It's that fast. So where you don't have that that five seconds of patching in a different amp and then your ears adjust and you can't tell the difference. It's it's literally boom, boom, A B, you're done. So you can flip through you know, I've got one, two, three, four, five, six amps all on right now and just ready to go. And I just plug it in, done. So yeah, it's been awesome. So if you are thinking about building one, I would definitely say go for it. And if you want to send one my way, then I would love that. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Mike. Next question. DJ. Hey, dude. I just finished listening to your episode and really enjoyed. Hope it's the first of many. Yeah, man, me too. Um, apologies if you've answered this before, as I haven't checked out the live mix video, but if not, could you elaborate a little bit in terms of the amp or distorted bass tone on the Silver String track? I really liked it. Yeah, I cover this in the, in the live mix, so you should watch it. But basically what it is, is it's just... Uh, it's a pre it's I I feel like every everything everything we do now is just stolen from periphery. And when I say we, I mean like the collective uh audio community, you know? I mean they they're just so good. But anyways, yeah, it's, essentially it was a for a while on the Axe exchange of the Axe effects, there was like a Nolly bass setting that he had done and I think in his setting 
it starts with so the guitar DI goes in, and if you're familiar with Axe Effects, you'll you'll kind of understand the blocks. And hopefully, if you're not, then I won't sound like I'm talking about rocket science right now. But anyways, the way it works is you have this grid, and there's blocks. So the way it works is it goes in, your clean DI comes in, and then that gets um, split to two different blocks. Then let's just call your top row of blocks is going to be like our bass or sub channel, and what does that get? I think I think on his there was a compressor on it, and then it goes straight to the the bass head, and then I forget the rest of his. And then the other amp that gets split down to the second row was a filter that kind of chops out all the bottom end, so it's not making like kind of that flubby uh, sound that you would get whenever you track like, you know, a bass through a guitar head. And then from there it goes to a, uh, like a Marshall style head into like a Marshall style cabinet with a 57 or whatever he was using to mic it. And then those get combined at the end. And I think he was even doing like some extra multiband EQ or like multiband compression inside of the Axe effects. But I just decided to kind of dumb that down and give myself something that I felt would work Almost every I can use this kind of setting now that I have on a, I've used it on uh, let's see there's this ages record called Weightless and they spent a lot of time getting their bass tone and then uh, I asked the band if I could do an AB with this tone that I had here and in and like unanimously everyone in the band chose this Axe FX preset, like without it, I was like, oh my God, that's gotta be the real amp. It sounds insane. And, but nope, it was my Axe FX. Uh, anyway, so what I've got is DI comes in, signal gets split. The top row is just the, uh, it's like the AD200. Uh, it's like the orange SIM. And then that goes to a four by 12 cabinet mic'd with a, and it's like the Yamaha Subkick speaker. And then that goes out to output one, which is like your left channel. And then now going all the way back to block one, it gets split down to row two. And then first block is going to be a, a high pass filter. And that'll, you know, lop off some of those bottom ends so it doesn't make your, your uh, Marshall style head all farty. Then I've got the Friedman Brown Eye on there going into a Marshall, and that comes out channel two. So ultimately what I've done is a similar thing to what a lot of the guys are doing where they take kind of like the clean sub track and then duplicate that and only put like a, you know, like a sans amp or distortion on like the the mids and high high mid and high end of the bass. So I've kind of done a thing like that I guess, in its simplest terms. So if you have an Axe FX, you can experiment with doing something like that. But I just love the way that the sub-kick mic sounds. as It's just really full and kind of like a little more harmonically rich than just the, uh, like using like a clean DI bottom end. Elon. Is it Elon? Elon Benita? Man, I feel like we have so much interaction and I'm always butching your name. Hopefully that's right. Elon Benita. Hey, Bo, one question about routing. You said you have an easy way about printing all your stems at once with your routing. Could you expand on that? I may have uh, either 
used poor English or not known exactly what I was saying if I did say that. Because I can't print them all at once. Um, basically, it makes it very easy when I do my stems because if now, you know, if you've seen my kind of like template for like my bus, my busing system that I have. So what what I do is all of my drums are always going to my drum bus. All my bass is going to my bass bus, guitars to guitars, you know, programming to programming, vocals to vocals, and then, you know, all the band elements go to a band bus. So what it does is, you know, as soon as I want to print my instrumental mix, I just mute my vocal bus. As soon as I want to do my drum stem mix, I just mute my... You know, you mute everything except for the drum mix. So unfortunately, it's not a fast way of doing it. It's just a really nice way of knowing that if you've routed everything correctly in your setup, when it comes time to do your uh, printing your stems, it's a very easy, systematic way of just going down the line of your, you know, from top to bottom on my on my busing. Okay, first up, drum stem, done. Print that in, and then that gets printed down below in the session, returning from my two-bus outboard compression. So, like for me, I have a two-bus compressor and EQ that goes on my entire band mix. So what I would do, and I'm using that as a hardware insert, so what I would do is I would just create a new track called, you know, drum stem, bass stem. The input of that track would be the return of my two-bus compressor and EQ. Hopefully that makes sense to you guys. Uh, that's how I do it. And it's very nice. And I would say it's very important that if you do have any two bus stuff going on on your two bus, you need to make sure that that stuff is there when you print your stems, because I did run into a problem of this where I printed my stems for a record and then the, the, uh, a mastering guy that I've never used before and it was I guess the label wanted to use them or something and this mastering guy just like tore me apart and kind of made me look like an idiot in front of the label and what his argument was is that he went to the label saying that in order to master the stems First off, I don't even know why they wanted to master the stems. That just sounded stupid to me. But regardless, they wanted to master the stems and he was going to charge them an entirely new mastering fee to master the stems. And his reasoning was is that the stems, when combined, don't sound like the mix that I had him master. So therefore, he can't just throw his settings on my stems and master them. He's going to have to do entirely different EQ moves and compression moves. And what I had done is I had tried to do it the easy way and just assign aux sends from each one of my buses and then print all of my stems at once. But that's great if you're going to be combining those yourself. But if someone else is combining them, they don't have that extra little bit of top boost or bottom boost that's on your two bus. So you're missing out on that. So anyways, yeah, this dude went to the label and he was like, sorry, man, like this guy is going to cost you, you know, or like I need this much more money because the mixing engineer printed this in wrong. 
And then, of course, the label's coming to me like, what the hell, man? Like, why are you costing us extra money? And then I had to explain to him that, no, this guy's an idiot, but I'll redo it to, you know, to save you guys money. I'll be cool about it. So, anyways, I was probably in the wrong, but also that guy was just an idiot. Anyways, whatever you're doing, if you have stuff on your two bus and that's how you're submitting it to be mastered, make sure you have that stuff on there when you print the stems too, because otherwise you might get that call one day, five years later, and they're asking you to, you know, export the stems, but you don't have that piece of gear or you don't have that plug-in anymore, and now you're kind of screwed because you'll definitely get one of those guys that's going to be a stickler for, oh, it sounds different. It's like a half dB too quiet at 8K. You know, it's like, dude, just EQ it. Okay. Next question. John Cavido. Random tangent. Cavido. For whatever reason, this (laughs) worst moment of sales in history uh man this is like in 2010 and we were touring on our second LP we had got moved over from Vir- from capital to virgin like lost everyone at the label and we were kind of like the redheaded stepchild at at virgin and they had no idea what to do with us the original plan for us at capital was kind of treat us like metallica and try to get as big as we could and let you know, the, the mainstream world come to us if that would happen naturally. The people at Virgin didn't figure that out and they kind of like dropped all their rock bands except for us, Red Jumpsuit Apparatus and 30 Seconds to Mars, which were, they were both radio bands and we were not. So they had no idea what to do with us. So they had to just try to push us to radio. And I remember one show, our very worst show ever, we had to it was like in the in middle america somewhere and we played a qdoba grill at lunch <laughs> and it was by far the most embarrassing thing i well i don't know i've done a lot of embarrassing things but one of the most embarrassing band things i've ever had to do was play a qdoba grill at lunch to like five people and like have no one care and just keep telling everyone, you know, they're mad at you because the guy making their burrito can't hear that he wants like no corn on it or something. You know what I mean? So it sucked really bad. Anyways, sorry, John, but Cavito reminded me of Qdoba. I don't know how I got there. Maybe because of the Q. Anyways. Hey, Bo, thanks for doing Nail the Mix and especially a big thank you f- Uh, for all the detail you went into. The drum section was probably the biggest knowledge bomb we have ever had on Nail the Mix, so thank you. I have two questions for you. Briefly on Nail the Mix, you were talking about converters and how the Apogee took something away when you heard your mixes back on other systems. I am currently using Apogee Duet, but curious what interface would you recommend to someone in the $300 to $500 range, if any? Okay, so what I... I guess let me clarify that. So... What I meant by that is the Apogee stuff, like I have a duet and I and I use it for like lots of mobile recording stuff. Like when the used was looking for a new guitar player, I was doing their their monitors for maybe like a year or two years. So I recorded all of their rehearsals for the people that tried out 
and every day I would give them to the guitar player, and and it was like, hey, here, here's the, I think the Apogee duet sounds great. I did a whole thing uh, with the Bronx on the Apogee site. You can see a recording that we did with nothing but mic preamp with a microphone into the Apogee. Oh, what is it called? I think it's called the not the ensemble, but the symphony. Just using their onboard preamps and converters, and it sounded fantastic. My issue was that the like converters like the the Apogee and like Burl and a lot of those super high end converters that kind of give you that that extra five ten percent like while you're listening back to the D to A conversion. I find that that if you're listening to that extra ten percent and then comparing those convert like let's just say take a mix that you just worked on right load that mix into Pro Tools hit play on Pro Tools and in your iTunes at the same time on your monitor controller switch back and forth between the two you should hear a pretty big difference on well not pretty big I'm, I'm definitely exaggerating but like I can definitely tell which one's which and when you're using those types of A to D or D to A converters, it's mainly the D to A because the A to D is great. It's just the D to A that gives you that extra little bit of sheen that is not there when you play it on a regular system. So that was my problem with it. I would be listening to it and then I would import my mix into iTunes and listen to it compared to some other records. And it was like, man, like I'm missing that extra little bit of like extra thump on the bottom and the sheen on the top. I'm missing that now. So that was that was a problem for me, you know, and converters are converters are a pretty big part of a sound. I I did a record for uh a pretty famous producer named Michael Beinhorn and we had tracked the record on Apogee at the time they were the DA16Xs and the AD16Xs. It's that's kind of like the uh the previous version of the the uh, symphony rigs now. So we had tracked the record on that, and then I had taken the files back to my studio, and I used the Lynx converters. I just did the edits and then bounced out the, just kind of like a rough, and sent that to him. Instantly, <laughs> sorry if you can hear my dog snoring in the back. He's like this 150-pound Great Dane that just sleeps on my couch all day long, and he loves to have uh, band guys in here screaming at him and wailing on guitar. Anyways, um, yeah, so I did the rough mix for him, sent it out. Mind you, didn't change a thing. All I did was just do the edits, like, you know, tune some vocals, tighten up some drums, etc. Sent Sent the mix back from him. And mind you, there's no analog gear, like none of the plugins are different or anything. And immediately he had said, something sounds off about the mix. It doesn't sound the way that the other refs we've been printing at the other studio sound. What's different? And he was, so ultimately it was the clocking. So what I had to end up doing is we bought an, a Big Ben clock and we clocked my converters to the Big Ben. And then all of a sudden the character of those converters came back and then, and then he was, you know, it was there. He was happy. So yeah, they can make a difference. But to answer your question, I think the duet is badass. I mean, I own one. They're awesome. I think that like the, there's also like the Lynx Hilo or Hilo 
Um, but I don't know what the price is on that. That's the only other one. You know, there's also like the the antelope stuff, and then UAD makes some pretty good ones. But I think you're set with the duet, man. Like I would, I would stick there. Okay, next question. Sander Saddam. Hey, Bo. What was it like getting CLA to mix the self-titled Seosin record? Did you get to meet him? And any cool insight into what he does or did on that record? Thanks. Yeah. What was it like having having him mix the record? It sounds good, you know? Um, it sounds great. I will say, <laughs> of course, my my biggest gripe was... At the time, we were we were living in Orange County, and his studio was in Burbank at the time. So it's about an hour drive-ish, maybe hour and some change, from our house in Orange County to the studio in Burbank, right? So his mix session starts at around 10 a.m., which means we have to leave our house at 9 and sit in traffic. But you can't just leave at 9 because you have to be there at 10. So we had to like leave at eight to make sure we were there by 10. Cause the last thing you want to do is, okay, big major label record, the band's supposed to be here. And you know, you don't want to be showing the label that you can't even show up to your own mix session on time. So me and Chris go up there and we get to the studio. Everyone there was super nice. Chris kind of like comes out of a secret door somewhere. He's got a cup of coffee in his hand or something. And he's like, hey guys, nice to meet you. Thanks for coming up. I'm really excited. He was super nice. Hey, this is uh, Shelly here or whatever her name was. And uh, she's going to be taking care of you guys today. So anything you guys need, uh, just let her know. And, uh, you know, oh, I think she just baked some cookies too. Here, yeah, have some cookies. These cookies are great. She's, that's her, that's her thing, you know? And it's like, okay, great. This is cool. And then, as we're kind of like, you know, it's like that oppor- that perfect opportune moment. As soon as we put a cookie in our mouth and start chewing and like we can't speak, then it was like, I feel like it was, I mean, I feel like it was so methodically planned out. Like it's something that he does, but I could be wrong. But it was like, as soon as we put the cookies in our mouth and we couldn't talk, it was like, well, cool. Well, I'm going to go mix the song and I'll call you guys when I'm ready for you guys to come listen to it. So see you in about two hours. And like... I like at first it didn't really hit us, but then after about 15 minutes, me and Chris were just like, wait, so you had us drive up here in traffic to be here at 10 and then you're going to tell us you don't need us till noon. Like, why would you do that to us? That's, that sucks. And anyways, you know, I even asked if I could go in there and it was very much like a, no, you can't go in like while he's mixing, which I definitely get, you know, because that's how I did a lot of my learning. And I would have been for sure asking him questions like, hey, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? And I probably would have definitely gotten his hour and a half mix probably to somewhere around the three hour mark. So he would have, he would have hated me. But all that being said, we went and had lunch and then got back to the studio. He was ready to play us the mix. Me and Chris walk in. He hits play on the speakers and I mean, it sounded awesome right from the get go. No real, no real notes other than like, hey, you know, like we want to uh, maybe have the background vocals up a little bit because we all sing. And uh, I think that's kind of a unique thing about our band, which he was cool with. And he was cool, but I think he also like secretly didn't want to, you know, 
because it was very much like, yeah, can we get those up? All right, sure, hold on, you know. And it was like I forget his Chris maybe was his 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 assistant's name was also Chris I think, and maybe it was like you know Chris, but play that. All right, cool. Let's get go from the chorus. Let's pump these up a little bit. All right, yeah, I think that's good. All right, guys. Um, anything else jump out at you, you know? And then I, of course, I'm like, yeah, I think. It's it's on the song collapse, and if you look listen to that song right from the very beginning, you, the drum beat is kind of like boom boom ba ba boom 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 ba ba boom, and you can hear like what sounds to me, and now what I know is like out of phase, slightly out of phase snare samples in there. And I mentioned it at the time, but I was maybe I was being a little too polite and acting like I didn't really know what was going on, and maybe that was the issue. I don't know, but. I had said like, hey, can we investigate maybe like the snare drum? Because it sounds like maybe there's something weird going on. It's like not really punching. Maybe it might be the bottom snare. I don't know. And then he kind of looked at me and then he just played like a little bit of the song through his small little boombox that he had. And then it was just very matter of fact, like, nope, sounds fine. Anything else? And like right then I kind of like got the hint that you know, okay, well, we we can only really ask for like level up or down, maybe, but anything else he's not really willing to touch or investigate. So that was a little bit of a bummer, but I understand, you know, and I mean, he does kick ass. So, I mean, I can't really have too many bad things to say about him because he did a great job. So, yeah, part B of your question, any cool insight into what he does or did on that record? Thanks. Yeah, I mean, again, I've told the story before. When we were tracking drums for that record, I had uh, expressed some concern about the Tom tracks having way too much cymbal bleed in them. And Howard, the producer, assured me and made up this ridiculous story about how, you know, like, oh, dude, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, Chris Lord Algae, the the bleed coming in our, our Tom mics sounds so fantastic that he actually uses our Tom mics as cymbal mics. And I was just like, oh, my God, you must think I'm an idiot. Like, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Anyways, skip to about six months to a year later, I get the multitracks back, like, from Chris Lord Algae, like... You know, like they've got all of his samples and everything on there. And what do I see? First thing, I open up, I go to the Tom tracks. They're completely chopped out, like in the same way that, you know, if you have the the silver string tracks, the way the Toms were just completely chopped out. So it was pretty, uh, that was kind of funny. I was like, oh, you freaking asshole. Like I can't, I knew it. I knew I was right. But all that being said, uh, yeah, I mean, he still does. Uh, it, it's funny because I open up that that session of his Seosin mixes, and if you watch his uh, mix with the masters thing that he does, I think he mixes like a Muse song or something. It's funny, like even down to the kick and snare sample, they're still coming up on the same track. It's like I want to say it's like forty one and forty two or something. It's it's up there, but it was funny, like looking at that, watching the Muse session. And then having like the Seosin session up, like looking at like how his organization was, still the exact same, like down, exactly the same. There was actually no difference. I think the only difference was we didn't have like the extra like band submitted snare sample on there. Uh, He just used all of his own. 
Okay, Eduardo Alexander Pando de Sade. Your question. Hey, Bo, what's your approach to gorilla recording drums in a not-so-great drum room? Specifically with the overhead, since they are the thing I struggle the most when I try to record anywhere else that is not my home studio. Thanks, and greetings from Mexico. What up, Mexico? Um, I would say, yeah, I mean, if you're trying to go gorilla... I think usually the biggest problems are coming from a crappy drum room is reflections that you don't want. So, I mean, obviously, like the jerk answer, or not jerk, but, you know, there's like the dorky internet guy that's like, well, why would you record in a crappy drum room? You should just record in a great one. Okay, well, that's not the answer here. But if you have a good drum room, I would really ask them to do it at your home studio. But, okay, addressing your question, I would say... Build some gobos that you can take with you, even if even if they're small ones or like decent sized ones. Bring them with you and put gobos all around the kit. Maybe bring some extra kind of like, uh, you know, you see those. Actually, you know, a great idea would be make your <laughs> make the uh, acoustical treatment in your studio kind of modular so that you know, the bass traps or the uh, whatever trapping you have going on in your room is movable, and then you can bring those with you while you're at another studio. I mean, that would be a good two-in-one, you know, solution because you can build those as almost as if they're gobos, place them around your room for bass traps, and then bring them with you, place them around the room as you're recording drums. Because you're really trying to just eliminate crappy reflections coming back and causing phase and weird buildups in your overhead mics. So that's what I would say. Try to get the, the cleanest tones you can, eliminating any crappy reflections if they are. But one other thing that I've been doing, uh, I've had good luck with, is if you're using your kit, if you have a house kit, then I would really suggest finding the ranges and notes that you know that that kit sounds great at. And basically, if you know that the close mics on your kit are going to sound banging, if they're, if they're punching and hitting in the right frequencies that you enjoy, or if you know you're going to be layering it with samples and you know that that kit... The, the frequency or the, the pitch of those drums lines up or it responds well to the samples that you're going to be using, that's half your battle right there. So, like I said, something that I had luck with was finding the tuning ranges that I really enjoy. I recently went to a studio where I had not been before and the control room was kind of... They just didn't have a... The, the isolation was not great. So... As I was tracking, I kept thinking like, man, I, I can't, I don't know if I can trust this control room. Like something sounds a little weird, but, you know, but in the back of my mind, I knew that my drum kit sounded awesome. And as you guys know, if you have an awesome sounding kit that's tuned up perfectly, you can kind of bowling ball microphones up to the kit and it's going to sound great as long as the guy's playing well. So I kind of went with that mentality but I did, the first thing, another thing, another little trick, the first thing I would do is when you go to a new studio, listen to your reference tracks to kind of get to know the room, but then also, also, also take a sine wave generator 
and start down at 20 hertz and just slowly sweep up and you'll be able to hear the room and where you're sitting start to uncover all those peaks and knolls that are at your listening position and make note of those because if your snare is tuned and the fundamental is at let's just say 150 hertz then if you have a big knoll at your listening position at 150 hertz you're going to try to tune that snare differently or you're going to be moving mics. You're going to be doing everything you can to try to fix what you think is a problem with the drums, but it's actually a problem with the control room. And you may end up making compromises that fix the problem in the control room, but then when you get it to your place, now all of a sudden you have the snare drum with, and maybe all of your mics, you've positioned them somehow, and there's so much 150 hertz. So... Again, that sine wave generator is a pretty big uh, pro tip, I guess, uh, going into a new spot. Learn that room real fast. It'll point out all the big peaks and nulls way, way more than a, uh, than a reference track. And the reason why that works better than a reference track, again, is because if your null is at, you know, let's just say your null is down at like 70 hertz or 80 hertz, you know, and the kick drum that you're listening to for your low end type of thing is the fundamental is around 60. So you're not going to hear that there's that null at 70. So you're kind of tricking yourself into, into thinking that the room sounds good when in fact it doesn't. So again, learn those nulls. That would be probably even more important than bringing the gobos. Either that or bring a great pair of headphones that you know and then just turn the monitors off. <laughs> okay, next. Rodney, Rodney Altenbaugh. Dear Bo, hey dude, first off, thank you so much for the incredible month you brought to Nail the Mix community in May. I think everyone was able to take away something that month. I sure hope so. I had a great time. Back to Rodney. First and foremost, thank you for inviting me to your studio to sit in and watch you work your magic. I took so much away from my visit to your studio in LA and will never forget it. Since my visit, I've learned that I am, for one, mixing entirely too loud. Hearing how quiet you worked was has opened my eyes, and I'm eager to make these adjustments. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't think I mix too quiet, but apparently, compared to some people I do, I mix at about, what is it, 80? 75 or 80? I'd have to check. Anyways, I have a, I, I, I think it's 75. No, it's got to be more. I think it's 85. Anyways, I have a mark on my monitor controller where I listen to. And I also have a noise meter right next to me at all times, just so I can kind of double check and check myself to make sure I'm not listening too loud. I think it was actually CLA that said that one time. He's like, you know, when you're mixing, you're working. And you're not really listening to music for enjoyment, I guess. You're you're mixing because you're working and you're trying to make something awesome and you're creating art or you're, you know, you're creating a technical side of things. But you know, if you're if you're listening loud, you're listening for selfish kind of like enjoyment. You know, it's like, yeah, this sounds sick. Cool. Pump it up. But if you're listening quiet, you're forced to mix and and work hard at it. So something that I took away from I kind of expanded on that and took this from a lot of like the film scoring guys they just stick one level and they don't touch it the entire time so 
what that does and the reason why I like it is because when your ears respond to music differently and they respond to sound differently at different levels. So as you raise and lower the volume of your monitors, the the frequency response of your ears actually changes. So you can think that you know, maybe maybe you have enough bottom end when it's loud, but then when you turn it down, you know, like now because the bottom end is not accentuated in your hearing that now you're focusing on mid-range. Well, you should be your mix should translate at every volume. It shouldn't it shouldn't matter how loud it is or what you're hearing. I mean, and I get the the I get the argument that like you're using the curve of your ears to hone in on certain frequencies. I get that, but I just don't really subscribe to that. I like having one volume mix the majority of my song all the way through and then maybe check it really low, check it on a couple different monitors and then check it loud, but only for a split second. I don't like kind of blasting my hearing out too much. Yeah, so that's 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 my opinion on it. Rodney's question. My question is actually about construction of your studio. I had a similar idea of building a small cottage or cabin similarly similar to what you had. I'm just curious as to far as what dimensions and any guidance for going that route. Thanks again for keeping me up. Thanks again and keep up the good work. Um, you know what? There is another question about this. I'm going to tag team these two. Patrick Graff also has a question about the studio. Did you design and build the studio yourself? If so, what resources did you look up and read about to build the space out? So to answer these questions, Rodney, my studio, it's so it's a it's a two-car garage, but it's a big one. It's the biggest one I could build on my property. It's 20 by 30. And you need it to be huge. So I it you have to kind of build these things purpose built. Because when I was building this, everyone everyone thought I was crazy because I had 10-foot ceilings in a garage and we're trying to like pass it by the city. And it's so funny because LA is so, so weird and the rules are just so stupid and everything you have to, all the hoops you have to jump through. And you guys, I'm sure every city is like this, but I mean, it's so ridiculous, you know? So like to give you an idea of how ridiculous it was, it's to build a new garage. I, I mean, and granted, it's a, it's an old part of LA, and uh, I'm kind of like just south of Hollywood. I'm in the thick of it, but in like a little tiny, like five block uh, little oasis. And it's all houses that were built like in the early 1910s to 1930s. So my house is 1922, and the driveway is like so small, like you you probably couldn't fit a truck down it. You know, it, it's, it's tiny. It's, it's built for the, the Model T car to drive down that driveway. But now, so the rules are, if you tear down your garage, which my garage at the time was pretty much just like a little shotgun shack or a, a, a large, a king-size outhouse, or if you will, and to tear that down and then build a new one, the new codes, for whatever reason, you have to build a retaining wall like a cinder block wall at the edge of your property, right? So, and I guess the reasoning for this is because some lady was driving down her driveway. Granted, it's like a very short driveway. So someone's driving down their driveway, car somehow blows up and catches the neighbor's house on fire. 
So now, of course, they pass a law that says, oh, well, we should definitely make everyone have this cinder block wall that separates their driveway so we don't burn other people's houses down. Great. Okay, fine. I can understand the logic behind that. But my neighbor has built onto their house illegally almost all the way up to the property line. There's like, they're about a foot away from the property line. So they did not adhere to the setback rules. They just went for it, right? I don't know if this neighbor did it or the people that own the house before them, but somehow their house is one foot away from the property line. So I go to the Department of Building and the Department of Planning, and it's it's so stupid how it's set up. So there's the Department of Building and Planning, I think, and then there's the Department of Safety. So the Department of Building and Planning says you need to build a wall. Great. I get the plans to build the wall all checked off. Now I take it over to the Department of Safety and the Department of Safety says, oh, sorry, well, you can't build a wall because your neighbor's bedroom window is going to be blocked by this fence and it's a fire escape. Technically, her bedroom window is a fire escape. Okay, well, do you want me to build the wall or not? Like, I'll do whatever you want, but just tell me what to do. So almost six months go by of these two departments like having a pissing contest of who's going to win this argument. Meanwhile, I'm sitting here just like, dude, I'll build the wall. I'll build like, what if we do, you know, trap doors that are op- that are that she can open from her side, like little like trap doors that she can open in case there's a fire. Oh no, we can't do that. Nope. Nope. So anyways, long story short, we finally ended up just going to a different in a different city to get approved for the plans and had, you know, just did like a total dumb guy uh, plot plan and like pretty much drew the whole thing on a napkin and said, yeah, I just want to build a garage over here and uh, this is what I'm thinking. And the guy signed off on it. So it, it was just, it was so ridiculous. Oh my God. Yeah, it sucks. Um, you want to build a big spot as big as you can. I mean... And I think every big studio owner will tell you, even if you have 10,000 square feet to, to, to work with, eventually you're going to say, I need more space. So, oh, that's where I was going with this. Yeah, so throughout the planning, right, I'm, it's like I, have, I wanted to do 10-foot ceilings inside my garage because that way when I build my uh, separate kind of pods that is my control room and isoboost shell inside of my garage... That way my shells would be nine feet and then I could have a foot of trapping inside of the room of base trapping on the ceiling to bring my ceiling down to an eight foot ceiling, which feels normal. I feel like lower ceilings just feels a little claustrophobic to be in a room with five guys all day, every day. So that was important to me. So like I said, planning ahead. But it was just funny because as we're doing these 10 foot ceilings in here, like the inspector guys are like, 10 foot ceilings in a garage, huh? That's a little... That's interesting. And then, of course, you know, the contractor's like, oh, yeah, he's a, you know, avid, like, you know, kayaker or canoe rider or something like that. And it's like, yeah, he wants to be able to park his cars in his garage and have his canoes still on his garage. So he doesn't want to have to take them off. It's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. All right, got it, you know. Or, and then there's this other rule we had to do where it was like the, the backup rule or a backup radius or something like that. And since our lot is kind of a small lot, trying to turn around a car in the in the allotted area in our backyard is kind of tough but we were we were able to get through it by saying that one of our car so 
for a two-car garage, one of the cars has to turn out and be able to kind of make a two-point turn to get out down the driveway. And we actually used the turning radius of a smart car. <laughs> so we were, we were able to kind of like get in there and it's like, hey man, the rules just say you have to have the turning radius of your car has to make this turning radius to be able to get out in this space. This guy wants to buy a smart car, so that's the turning radius we're going to use. And I just I found that really hilarious. It was kind of a dumb thing, but anyways, um, yeah, I I did end up building most of the uh, construction myself. I had a couple friends helping me, full on, just kind of like trying to make it so the neighbors didn't know very much. And it was like I would have Home Depot just delivering huge pallets of like, you know, five-eighths drywall. I would have them deliver it as deep into my driveway as they could. And then I would have three friends there with me to like hustle up and get everything moved into the garage as we were building everything. And uh, it was pretty fun. And then I have a friend who is a electrical contractor. So he came in and did all of the electrical stuff for me, which he thought was like super, super funny and, and also fun because I also have, you know, separate isolated grounds on on different circuits so you know what I mean it was it was kind of fun for him to do then the room kind of like went through a couple different uh changes between different kind of styles of room I finally found this uh this type of room uh there's a good book by this this guy named Philip Newell and that's kind of the room that I have. So I had a room that had the non-environment and with the flush mount speakers in the front of my room. If you go on my Facebook or Instagram, you can kind of see what the room used to look like. And there'll be like a console in there that I used to have. But eventually my room was just too small to have those huge speakers in here. I mean, it was like dual 15 inch speakers mounted in the wall and it was just, it was huge. So got rid of those, redid the room had this guy named Herman Vergen out here in LA help me. He's done a lot of studios out here. He kind of helped me come in and kind of finalize it and dial in the room. And that's where I'm at now. But my control room itself is only about uh, 19 by 16. And if I could do it again, my advice would be don't follow any of like the the, oh, you need to have your walls splayed or, or angled or any of that stuff. It's all I get what people are saying by that, but when you do that, you're just creating more problems in the sense of trying to treat your room. One of the great things about a rectangular room, if you have the right dimensions, it's going to sound great with minimal treatment. So there is a forum that you can go onto. Uh, it's the John L. Sayers forum, and you can kind of like run all your ideas by those guys and they're just nothing but like acoustics and, you know, studio building dorks that are just on there and they just love to help you. You will definitely get some of those, you know, like anything, you're going to get those answers. It's like, hey, I'm trying to build my studio in like a five by 12 closet. Like, how can I treat it? And people are just going to be like, yeah, that's a bad idea. Don't do it. But, you know, you can at least find a lot. I would read all of the the studio build threads that are in there and try to pick and choose information that's relevant to your situation. But yeah, if I had the if I had the idea to do it again, I would probably do the whole garage like a huge control room and then maybe build a small ISO booth at maybe one of the back corners or like back center of the room to like throw like for amps in there or figure out a way to kind of like 
isolate amps somewhere like or maybe even dig down under underground and make like an underground kind of basement area for uh for guitar amps to just live in especially with the microbot it's like you never even need to go down there now so anyways yeah and then rodney says p.s my family is now interested in a bidet uh for those of you <laughs> thanks so for those of you that don't know a fantastic studio essential is a heated toilet seat and a bidet and it's just it's fantastic I won't even use the toilet in my house anymore. If I have to take a dump, I go out to the studio and I walk upstairs and I sit on my heated toilet seat and then I give myself a nice wash when I'm done. And it is just, you know, for all, for all of the crap that we have to deal with as audio engineers, people, people yelling at us or making, making uh, you know, just unrealistic demands that that nice heated toilet seat and the uh, H2O wash at the end just makes makes it all worth it. Also, from Patrick Graff, question about the phase trick to clean up drum bleed. Why do you EQ the source before you do the phase trick? Is this to help give a difference between the two signals or is it just to save time once you've printed the new cleaner track? So it's not about, like, so first off, you don't want, the signals to be different at all and if you understand how this trick works you you're understanding that eq deals with phase so if you take the track that you high pass and compress if you take that track and eq it differently than the track that is not high passed and not compressed that's going to make some phase issues between those two tracks so if you're going to be adding top end to one, make sure you duplicate that plug-in on the other. The only thing that should be different about those two tracks is the high-pass filter following the compressor. That's the only difference. Everything else you want the same, otherwise you'll get weird bleed and like weird response from it. Another trick that I've kind of like uh, been hip to is someone mentioned potentially using a transient designer before the uh, compressor to help quicken the attack, which was a kind of a cool trick, or even sometimes using a limiter. So, you know, it's not... It is pretty much a trick that'll work every time, but sometimes, depending on the source, you may have to give it some more transient to get there or maybe even knock some off. Eric Howell. He says, hey, man, I love your work. I was wondering what kind of amps you used on the Mooseblood album and what are some tips on getting that not very distorted tone to be full and powerful enough to drive a mix. I've also got another Axe-Fx question below, so I'm going to combine these two. Matthew Byes says, I've noticed over the years of trying to get the perfect guitar tone out of amp sims that the cabinet impulses can take a tone from muddy mess to completely usable without even touching the amp settings. What are some of your favorite impulses from the Axe Effects for the medium gain type of tone that works well with big chords? Or do you prefer to run it through a real cab and mic it up? Thanks. So Matt, I haven't really ran the Axe Effects through a cab yet because to me, the Axe Effects is all about convenience. It's about, you know, here's this tone. It's already dialed. It's saved. I know it works. I can use this. Um, or it's about finding tones that might be more difficult to do 
in the real amp world. Like, for instance, like that bass trick, you know, like two separate amps. It's like, well, obviously that's going to be kind of a nightmare to to do all of that at once and keep everything totally in phase the way that it is in the Axfex. So to answer both of your questions, the trick to getting the low gain stuff but without being super muddy is all about your input filtering. And so for Axe effects on those types of tones, like the moose blood stuff, like you're not going to believe me, but a lot of that stuff is actually neck pickup or middle position pickup. And usually neck pickup on distorted guitars is almost unusable. It's just so much mud because the, t- the tone is just so full and, you know, whatever, quote unquote warm. But to me, it's just muddy. So the first the first block is always an EQ block with a big mid bump and usually a, a, a high pass filter or a low cut, whatever you want to call it. Just hucking out a bunch of that low end that's just eating up the headroom of that amp. And then all of a sudden you'll start to notice that the uh, the muddy cabinet impulse you 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 are kind of thinking is the problem is no longer the problem because now that muddy cabinet impulse response is actually giving you the kind of bigness and low end mud that would be missing if you had a very like clear or uh you know pristine sounding cab so i i mean that's how i like to deal with it and that's how i that's how i work with those that's how i did those and then you may have to EQ it a little bit more after the fact to uh, on the actual amp. Like So in the amp block, you can actually go in there and mess with the graphic EQ that's on there. And I think that the graphic EQ that's on there sounds, if you're going to add, let's say, 4, 6, 8K up in there to get some brightness, I think that that sounds totally different than if you were to add it after the fact. So try messing around with that stuff too. And you can cut out some of the, that's actually another good place to experiment too. You can kind of cut out a lot of that two, four, two and 400 area by using the graphic EQ on the amp uh, blocks themselves. But the trick to, I would say in general, the trick to great guitar tones or getting those types of tones to work is having everything work together. I recently got asked to produce another record based on the drum sounds for that Mooseblood record. And it's funny because the type of band it was, those drum sounds are not going to work with with the type of band that they are. So it's funny, you know, it, it, it's it's all about making the tones work together. I mean, to me, that's the biggest accomplishment or the, the biggest goal that you can have is getting a bunch of cool sounding tones to really work together and make them all feel great so yeah sometimes the key to a great guitar sound is actually a cool drum sound that supports it or sometimes the key to a making a muddy guitar sound sound great is maybe letting the bass take a back seat you know different ways of looking at things Michael Cooper. Hey Bo, can you explain your joking <laughs> joking? Can you explain your vocal tracking approach? I was actually just talking about this with someone the other day and I think there's a couple different approaches 
a lot of people kind of, from what I hear, a lot of people will say like, yeah, man, sing the song eight times and I will comp it together. I think that personally, I think that that is a huge waste of time. And chances are, if they're if they've been rehearsing a song and singing it one way, the thing that you don't like about the first take or the seventh take is going to be in every take because that's just how they've been doing it. So my way of working is I have the singer come in, show me what he's got. We put down, we do one take of sing the song all the way through, show me what you've got. If you don't have lyrics for that section, just give me some lottie dotty dotties or just free ball some stuff. We do that. I take a listen to it. I make notes. I present those notes to the singer. We talk about which notes we want to implement. Then we go back, fix just those parts, see how they sound. Because obviously there's going to be some things where it's like, hey, you know, you're saying turn off the lights and I want you to say turn off the lights. J- just different phrasing things, you know, depending on how the drums are moving or or maybe I might want them to say, uh, hey, you know, like this song is kind of like the same chords throughout the whole song, doesn't really go anywhere. So maybe to differentiate the verse from the chorus, let's maybe have the verse all starting on the one or on the downbeat and then let's make the chorus kind of come in on the on the upbeat afterwards to give it kind of a slightly different feel. But we'll keep your melody and lyrics all the same. So sometimes I might give a note like that and the singer might be a little bit confused or I get what you're saying, but I just have to hear it. It's like, cool, let's just try it. And then we'll listen back and see if we like it. So that's basically what I do. And that's kind of, I do that kind of pre-production all at the same time as I'm kind of like going through and tracking. Once we get that done, then I go through and as many lines in a row as he is capable of singing, then we'll do. So we might just do one line at a time. We might do like a whole verse at a time. It really depends on the song, how long the verses are, how long the lines are, how much is how much breathing is involved, where the notes are in the song. You know, let's just say it's a screaming part. We might save the screamings for last because he knows the screamings is going to blow his voice out. He knows that he can't sing high notes, so we'll do the high stuff last, so we'll skip those if there is any. It's all about trying to work to where the vocalist is going to be able to give his best performance. And whatever he's or she is, I mean, I I, I don't even know why I say she. I, I mainly work with he's. Um, so whatever they're feeling is is the most important to me. So... Yeah, we do. We might do a couple couple lines, do those a couple times, and I I go for the take that I that I want. So if I if I'm hearing him saying, you know, like, hey, those are my whatever M and M's, then then I'm gonna say like, hey, I don't like how you're saying my. You know, it gives me a weird like. I'm listening to it in context of the mix, and all I can hear is e. It's like this kind of like 3K ring that's happening when you do that with your mouth. So can you maybe try to say like, can you, you know, can you please give me my and make that kind of more of a ma instead of the my type of sound? And I'll work on a lot of those things with them to make them kind of sound their best in the track. Then. From there, we may even have to sing that same my 15, 20 times until we get it right. But I'm looking to kind of get a good take to where once, it, almost like getting a guitar track, you know what I mean? Like you're punching in for certain notes and if you if you can't sing it all, if you can't do it all in one pass, then we'll just get it one for that one thing. 
and then I'll just treat every line like that. And then once I get the whole main vocal track done, I'll have the singer give me a double of the whole song. I may or may not use it. I kind of treat that like a safety net just in case there's something that when I go to tune it, if for whatever reason I misjudged myself and I thought I could tune a note, but when I tune it, it sounds weird to me. So at least that way I have one extra backup safety net word or line that I can tune and hopefully that one will sound good. But the majority of the time now I'm so so used to and I know my limits of what I can fix, I rarely end up using it unless I want the double there as some sort of double effect to kind of blur the vocal a little bit. My favorite vocals are always just that nice, dry, ultra-compressed, upfront vocal that just sounds like he's in your face singing to you only. Um, and then from there, once I get those done, I'll tune and time all those, get them feeling exactly how I want. Then I'll go through and we'll do all the harmonies. I normally double all the harmonies. So if it's a, if it's a three-part harmony, then there'll be six tracks. So I always do a stereo, you know, if it's like a mid-harmony, uh, so I'll have mid-harmony left, mid-harmony mid right. Those will be hard panned. If they're in the chorus, for a verse, I may pan them in a little bit so they're not distracting. But I guess that's mixing. You're asking about my tracking process. So yeah, I'd normally double up all the all the harmonies just, just so I have them and I can put them anywhere I want. Okay. KCC. When you receive multitracks from someone else, how do you determine which to use? Or do you use all of them? You're awesome. Thanks for doing these, dear bows. Thanks, Casey. I'm parched is what I am. This talking business is, is no joke. Um, how do I determine which to use? Um, I normally use most of them. The one thing I rarely use is guitar DIs. I got sent files once before, and I knew something was a little fishy when I downloaded the files and the zip file was only like 200 megabytes. And I was just like, what is going on? I opened up the session, or I imported everything. The drums were all MIDI. The guitars were just DIs. The bass was DIs. And then there was just vocals. And... I don't really like to mix things like that. I like, to me, that's producing. If I have to pick which drums you're going to play, that's to me, that's producing. If I have to pick which amps you're going to play, that's that's more like producing. And that is a totally different side of my brain than mixing. So that being said, guitar DIs, I'll normally don't use those. They'll still be in my session, but they'll be inactive and hidden. The bass mic... I'll definitely listen to sometimes if it's a, a character that's really cool and I want to keep it and the band wants to keep it. Let's just say the character is really cool, but the bottom end is kind of farty. So I might just high pass their character of their bass mic and then use my low end of my Axe FX tone to supplement the low end. Uh, the only mics that I feel like I usually don't use is kick, like NS10 mic. I feel like that microphone is always just a bit slow and late sounding to me. I just, for whatever reason, the way I want to hear a kick drum, it's never with that. 
you know, it's like the, the NS10 mic is always just kind of, it's never loud enough. And then when you get it to the point where you're like, yeah, this thing's starting to slam, then it's too loud and it eats up too much of your mix. So I find that I have better luck with either layering in like a low sub kick sample or using a plugin like Low Air or Low Ender to try to get that sub in there if the, you know, the other mics aren't giving it to me. That and then the mono room mic. In a mix where I'm going for clarity, mono room mic normally gets cut if I have the option of stereo room mics. I'll usually always go for stereo room mics over mono most of the time. And the reason is because I like to smash my drum room mics and if I have that kind of, that constant kind of room cymbal sound of like that going in my center channel, that's just totally competing with my vocal and everything else in the middle masking a lot of stuff. And I've noticed every time I just mute that mono room mic, all of a sudden the mix opens up and it's just clarity central. So that, I don't usually delete it, but... Whether or not it actually makes it to the mix bus is sometimes questionable if they have stereo mics. If I'm forced to use a mono room mic, I'll normally probably duplicate that and then pan one to the left going to a reverb and then pan one to the right going to another reverb. And the reason why I'll use two mono room reverbs is because they, to me that sounds a little more stereo than just assigning the one mono to a stereo room reverb. I think there's something within the algorithm that since you're sending the same frequency to the both sides of the the reverb, like I feel like it just feels more narrow and I don't feel like a difference of left and right. Yeah, and then for guitar tracks, if they send me guitars that have like eight mics on them, I'll normally just go back to them and say, hey man, I need you to print the uh the the tone that you guys are working with because right now you're just giving me eight different ways to screw up your tone and especially if the mics aren't all in phase with each other or there's like a weird thing that's happening you know well actually you know you guys probably experienced this with the uh the Taylor Larson guitars and the uh the Meshuggah guitars you know so there's there's all those tracks that you have right and there's, there's absolutely no way as an outside mixer to know which ones are supposed to be where. So that's why I make the producer, if I'm just mixing, I make the producer make the call. Like, which is going to go where? Tell me where I need what. Because I feel like my best work is done fast at the beginning of the mix, going with my gut. And if I have to sit there and mix four different guitar tracks that are essentially the same guitar that's it's kind of that's a part of my brain I don't want to use and I don't want to use that energy on that I'd rather it be okay well how can I just make this guitar my my two guitar tracks sound better why do I have to start implementing other tracks and then working on automation between four different amps it's just to me that's a lot of a lot of work that is not really necessary for what I would like to be doing next up Santiago Romero did you plan from when you were young to become a record producer and play in a band at the same time? No, I didn't. I had no idea like what a record producer was when I was a kid. I would just walk around the house with a broom 
like doing big old you know windmills on my guitar or on my my guitar I still think it's a guitar on on my broom and I would always tell him I you know it was like I just want to be a rock star when I'm older and now now I want to be the exact opposite of a rock star and I want to be the guy that sits here and like I have this kind of like joke that I say with a couple different friends and it's like man I love making music I hate being in a band and what I mean by that is there's so much crap that goes into like being in a band, you know, and having to, having to like make the different parties in your band happy. You know what I mean? Like, like, and there's so many of those things where it's like, oh, well, this guy doesn't really contribute, but I really want to make him feel like he's part of the band. And there's all this stuff you do throughout your, your band life when you finally look back and you're like, wow, that was a, a lot of wasted effort on like just kind of doing band stuff when I could have just been making music the whole time and, and, make, and doing things that I really enjoy. So anyways, all that being said, I'm making the band seem like, uh, or being in a band in general seem like it's crappy, but it's actually very fun. But I think when you compare it to the whole like being your own... I guess that's what it is. When you when you're when you're producing records and mixing your records, you're judge, jury, and executioner. You know, you get you get the final say on everything. But then when you're in a band, you have five other guys that you have to reason with and you know, you have to keep them happy and sometimes you get outvoted. Sometimes I get outvoted on mixing, you know, whether or not I want, you know, something to be the focus versus this to be the focus, or if that harmony's good or not. But you know, when I get outvoted in that situation, usually it's because they act, the band normally has a good idea and a clear vision of what they want, and I actually was wrong. So I actually enjoy those moments when I get outvoted because I'm, I feel like I learn from those situations. And I guess that's something else too. I feel like whatever situation you're in, you should always find something that you can walk away from it and learn something from, whether it be, you know, like, oh no, man, like we actually really want that guitar part to be obnoxiously loud. We want that. Like that's, that's the whole part of this song that, that we want to stick out. And it's like, oh really? Okay. I thought the guitar sounded pretty crappy, but you know, I was trying to tuck it and they're like, oh yeah, no, no, it's supposed to be crappy. That's what we love. We really want to accentuate that. <laughs> like, whoa, okay. Uh, that's not what I was thinking, but let's go for it. You know, and then you try it and you're like, that's actually pretty cool. It makes that crappy part now sound intentional rather than you trying to hide it. So, yeah, making music's awesome. <sighs> having to having to having to deal with people is what sucks. I shouldn't say being in a band sucks cuz touring and making music and getting to travel the world is actually pretty awesome, but having to having to put up with people sucks. Next question. Sidharth Subramanian? Sid. Let's call you Sid. I really enjoyed listening to the tips and tricks you mentioned on how to avoid errors slash correct them. Could you elaborate on a trick you mentioned to hear pumping? Uh, for example, putting a mix into mono and flipping the phase on the left and right channels. Are there any other similar tricks that you use to check yourself and find errors in your mix? That's, I mean, that's a great one. I, I like using that to analyze records a lot. I was just talking to someone uh, online yesterday and he sent me a mix to listen to and I was like, man, like your snare reverb is just 
sounds like it's coming at me from 360 degrees. It's just surrounding me. It's crazy. You know, I, I'm not sure if he could quite hear it in his listening environment. So, uh, you know, I mentioned doing that trick. I was like, hey, you know, like, uh, you know, and he, and I think he was men- he was referencing like a uh, like a Taylor Larson mix, and I had noticed something about I don't know if he does it on all of his mixes, but one of the one of the things that I noticed, or at least that I think I've picked up on, is that a lot of his uh, drum ambience is kind of panned in the in the center, it, like the drum rooms and stuff aren't really that wide, and the way you can kind of check those things is. Like I said, you'll take your mix, dump it down to mono, and then flip the phase of one side of your mix. And what that does is it eliminates everything that's in your center channel. So the only thing you're hearing is your sides. I mean, I guess it's the same if you were to use like a mid-side processor and then just mute your middle channel. But I told him to do that, and it was funny. I think he replied back, and it was like, oh my God, you're totally right. Like, all, all the drum ambience in that song is totally up the middle. It like disappears when you put it, when you do that trick. And then I did it to mine and all I hear is snare reverb. So, you know, that's just kind of a cool trick to see what's going on in your side information. You can also do the same thing by using a mid side processor, you know, even looking at your center channel versus your sides is kind of interesting. But those are just kind of things that you know, I've kind of seen different mastering guys utilize mid-side stuff and then realizing the power of analyzing what's there. So that's that's kind of cool. Let's see, something else. Yeah, I had... So one time I had a dude, I was mixing a record and I kept getting notes back from this singer and all of his notes had to do with like weird it was kind of like an indie rock band and a lot of his notes had to do with like the shakers and the tambourines and weird kind of like percussive elements way up in like the 10 to 20k range and every time we would listen to them in the studio it would be great and then he would take the mixes out to his car and he would be like man i don't know what happened the song is ruined and all i can hear is hi-hat or all i can hear is tambourine and it's just this really piercing top end So we couldn't figure it out. I finally go, I have him bring his car over. I go sit in his car and listen. Lo and behold, boom, hi-hat is just like ripping. and Or tambourine and shaker, all that stuff. Everything up in that range. So what I did is I got back into the studio and tried to kind of mimic the EQ curve of what his car stereo sounded like. And I started trying to figure out a way to make that, to make my monitors sound like his car stereo and recreate that problem. What I found was that in his stereo, there was some sort of huge high frequency boost combined with the classic like aftermarket tweeters. So what I did is I put a huge like 10 dB shelf at like, 6k I think and what it enabled me to do is really hone in on that really high frequency stuff and of course there it was it was like poking out like crazy just so I've now taken that kind of one step further and when I check my top end I still kind of do that thing 
And the reason is I want my mix to trans and it, and it's kind of the same reason why I don't really like low pass guitars too much because if someone hears my mix and they hear it on a system with a lot of top end I don't want that changing the mix. I don't want just my hi-hat or just my cymbals being super loud. I want all of my mix to be just bright. Does that make sense? I want it to be balanced. So something you can do, throw that high shelving on there, crank it up real loud, then go through and listen to anything that's poking out at you. Because at a reasonable volume, your mix is going to sound balanced. And like those few things like the shaker and tambourine track, that really high frequency stuff that's up there, it's not going to be bothering you because it's relative to the rest of the track. So when you boost that up, you can, it kind of sheds a light on what is really happening way up top. So that's something that I found to where I've been able to get my mixes a lot more consistent no matter where they played back by just kind of examining that top end and giving me that boost. And then the way you fix it is whatever is poking out, let's just say, you know, you're going over the section where it has the shaker in it and the shaker is just somehow like really bright in like that kind of like 12, 15K area. So you just go on your shaker track and duck it down in those air in those offending areas and you know only get the offending areas cuz that's the only thing you're after and then you duck those down and then take the high pass filter off and it should sound the same as it did before but just now just more smooth so when you have that high frequency shelving on your master bus now it's like wow the whole thing still feels balanced and nothing's popping out so that's just one way of kind of making sure that your stuff translates from system to system one other trick I'd say for like checking sub low end stuff. So I finally got my subs set up in here. So I have, I actually have stereo subs now and I'm pretty good on low end. And when I say I'm good on low end, I don't mean like I'm badass at doing low end. I'm saying like I can hear low end fine in here. Um, so if you don't have a sub and your speakers go down low enough you can do the whole like check the sub trick by just low passing your master fader. Go over to it, assign a high cut, bring it way down to like 70 hertz or something or 80 hertz and just listen to what's going on down at that level. You know, obviously it's going to be much quieter than if you were to have an actual sub pump in your room. But if your speakers go down to like 30, 40 hertz, then you should be able to get an idea of what's going on down there. And if your speakers don't do it, you can listen to it on headphones, but it's really just a way of kind of honing in on those areas to, to kind of see how your kick and your bass is punching together, but without being, let's see, I don't want to say, yeah, I guess without being deceived by the attack of the kick drum, because as we know, especially in rock, you take away that attack. And then a lot of the times you almost can't feel or can't hear the kick drum so it's i think it's important to make sure that you can feel the kick drum without having that attack in there because it's kind of you know that's the whole thing with mixing it's all just a big illusion and how you can make people think things are bigger than they are or smaller than they are if you want so hopefully that's good for you sid <sighs> last question brandon gregory hey bo i'm a live sound guy and i've been doing it for a few years now 
One of my goals is to tour with bands around the world, but every band who has asked me about working with them want me to provide a full sound system or work for free. Being that you are in such a big band, what are some things that you guys look for in an engineer to go on tour with you, and how would you suggest someone go about getting those kinds of opportunities? I hope that makes sense. Thanks. Brandon. Well, Brandon, I think... This is a great question, actually. So here's where the live sound world is awesome. And you have the opportunity to progress. If you're good, then you're going to go somewhere. That's my opinion in live sound. Here would be my advice. Find a band that's good. Go out with them for free. Or, uh, you know, do it as cheap as you can. It's weird that whatever band is telling you to provide a full sound system, uh, that's just ridiculous. Um, I don't I don't even know what kind of person could afford to buy the right kind of sound system and then would work for free or you know you know what I mean or like f- the types of bands that are bringing their own sound system to clubs are being paid way more than. I don't know. Some, that doesn't add up. I feel like those people are uninformed or that's just... Those dudes are dumb. But the great thing about doing front of house for people is... And front of house is different than monitors. I actually love doing monitors, but I hate doing front of house. And the reason why I like doing monitors is because I get to have five guys on stage telling me every night that my mix was just killing it. So it's very similar to like being in the studio. And I get to be in my own world, and it's great. And I get to feel like I'm kind of like part of whatever band I'm working with. But at front of house, the reason why I don't like it is because no matter how mix, how great your mix is, you're always going to get little Stevie's mom coming up to you being like, oh, my son plays bass and I can't hear his bass. Can you turn it up? You know, whatever it is. Or you're going to get like the guitar player's girlfriend after the show, you know, like, oh yeah, like I couldn't hear your solo, you know, Sebastian, like, oh, your sound guy sucks. You should fire him. So that's to me is the difference in monitors versus uh, front of house. The band never actually hears front of house. They only hear what their idiot friends tell them about it. Whereas monitors, the band fully hears how good the monitors are, and they're the only ones that matter. But if you're doing front of house and you rip, right, and the band is good, that but here's the, here's the one thing. The band has to be good. Whatever band you're going out with, they have to be a good band. Because in the live world, you don't get to replace drums, you don't get to quantize, you don't get to tune and time vocals, you don't get to fix everything, you don't get to like double things up and do crazy tricks. I mean, you can a little to some extent, but not nearly like the kind of magic you can work on like a, you know, like a DAW style mix. So what I'm getting at is if you go out with a band that's like just a good band, you're... 80% there. So if you can make that band rip, then every band and every person that's working on that tour is going to hear how 
man, did you hear the second band? They fucking sound great. Like, you know, and then it's going to get around that, you know, eventually the headliner is going to start talking like, how come the opening band sounds better than we do? And then next thing you know, you're getting scooped up. Like, I have a friend who started out doing some regular rock band. He was by far way better than anyone else on the tour. Then Under Oath picked him up. He was doing front of house for Under Oath when we were on tour with Under Oath doing Taste of Chaos together. And it was just one of those things where everyone on the tour was like, how come Under Oath just sounds so much more punishing than every other band? And it was always like, oh, well, it's got to be the sound guy. Like, their sound guy just rips. And that's totally what it was. Then he gets, you know, because of that, then he got picked up by Paramore and was working with Paramore forever. And then, of course, you know, then after that, well, I don't really know what happened with that, but now he's out with Sleeping With Sirens. And, you know, now he's on all these gigs where he's just getting paid retainer and making tons of money and killing it. So, but what I'm getting at is if you kill it, even if you're going out for free, doing front of house for the opening band, my point is, is that the headliner, the main support, everyone else is going to, they're going to be forced to hear your mix every night. So if you're great, like, I mean, imagine how great that would be if you were a studio guy and it was like, every time you did a killer mix, like, there's all these potential people that are willing to hire you that get to hear that killer mix that you're doing. You know what I mean? Like, imagine how much farther we would be. But a lot of the times we do these great mixes and then no one ever hears them. So that, I think, is the main advantage of doing live sound is that the people that are going to be hiring you or let's say the, the, you know, the tour manager for the main support band hears your mix every night and he thinks you rip. And, you know, he says you're a great guy and great to get along with, super easy going. You're not a drunk. You're not, you know, knocking on their bus door every night trying to do coke with the guys. You're just a, a great dude. You're helping load the trailer. You're you know, bringing coffee to people, you know what I mean? You're just doing like, wow, fucking Steve is awesome. So that dude goes, you know, after his job doing whatever band, then all of a sudden now it's like, oh, now he's tour managing Deftones. Oh, and now he's tour managing whatever, like, I don't know, Metallica or something. And it's like, you know, Big Mick dies. And then now you've got like, oh man, tour manager, I know this guy, he kills it. Now at least you've got that opportunity to jump in on the referral of someone else that's actually heard your mix, and now you're able to just just rock it up the ladder. Does that make sense? But as far as what we're looking for, again, sorry, that's just the great thing about it, but as far as what we're looking for, at this point, we're just looking for somebody that that is great at sound and that is just a cool dude. That's really it. Because when you're touring in a band and you're on a bus all the time, you know, and, we, and we've had to fire people before just simply because people just didn't get along, you know, or like, man, we, oh, lighting guys are the worst. I don't know what it is about lighting guys, but like, if you think sound guys are dorky or like us audio guys are dorky, like, just, just go hang out with a lighting guy and you'll want to shoot yourself. You know what I mean? It's like you hear these stupid arguments like, oh man, the band, you know, it's like people show up to, to watch the band, not to listen to the band. My lights are the most important part about the show. And you're just like, dude, come on, like shut up. But yeah, we fully fired lighting guys before just because they were just complete douches and we couldn't, we just couldn't be around them. 
So, yeah, if you're cool and you're doing a great job, that's really all you need to do. And your work will speak for itself. And with that, man, I think we did it. If you enjoy this and hearing me run my mouth and just kind of talk about dorky stuff, make sure you email aall at urm.academy and uh, with the subject line, Dear Bo, and we can have another date night or talk on our commute or whatever it is you do when you listen to the podcast. And uh, talk to you guys later. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Drumforge. Drumforge is a forward-thinking developer of audio tools and software for musicians and producers alike. Founded on the idea that great drum sound should be obtainable for everyone. We focus on your originality. Drumforge, it's your sound. Go to drumforge.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit nailthemix.com slash podcast and subscribe today.